as we make our way to our teaching text today, I, I want us to start out with like a little mental exercise. So um, this is kind of like a warm-up for the talk. If you, if, are you ready for this? Okay. All right, I think we're ready. Um, so think of a person who's commonly recognized as powerful. This can be a celebrity. This could be maybe a world leader or a president or, or Dan Davis. Um, so, okay, do you have that person in your mind? Okay. Now, now imagine that person dispossessed of their power. That is, the power that they hold is now removed. How do you picture that person? More specifically, like what are they, what are they wearing? What are they, what's their facial expression? Just let that populate in your imagination. Well, here is how one artist answered these questions. Uh, as you'll see, um, it looks like this. And the next one. So these and more paintings like them uh, were composed by the Syrian Abd, uh, artist Abdallah al-Omari, and this was from a collection called the Vulnerability Series. And if you can imagine by depicting the 45th president at a re as a refugee and the North Korean leader as a child, Omari's work grew a lot, like drew some adoration, and it also drew some agitation from a handful of folks. Uh, but what's so curious about Omari's motivations are, are this, he actually has this interview, this line from this interview that I, th I thought was so captivating. He said this, I wanted to take away the power not to serve my pain or my personal story. So Omari was himself uh, a Syrian refugee who was living in Brussels at the time that he composed these works of acrylic and canvas. And so he's not wanting to take away the power to serve his pain or personal story, but to give back those leaders their humanity. He goes on to say that, I've been totally convinced that vulnerability is the strongest weapon humans have. Way more powerful than guns and bullets. And then this line here is interesting. Vulnerability is a human gift that we should all celebrate. Somehow, vulnerability like, goes to work on us. And by vulnerability, it's just this idea that we would open ourselves up. This is like not a holistic, but a simple definition that we would open ourselves up such that we could be known. And, and in that space, there's some risk, there's some emotional exposure, there's some harm that actually may come. But vulnerability, it works on us. And thinking about Amari here, it like dismantles power, it does away with pomp. And I think at the same time, vulnerability tells the truth or at least it has the potential to. And the thing that struck me that was like, okay, if vulnerability is a gift that we should all celebrate, how do we do this? How do we celebrate the gift that is vulnerability? And to that end, I just think that Omari's words and his work are, are pretty instructive, especially as we consider Jesus's prayer or rather this proclamation in John chapter 19. And so if you have your Bibles, you can flip or tap your way on over to John chapter 19. We're going to pick up in verse 28. Uh, at this point in John's gospel, there has been a lot that's happened. In fact, we are at like the penultimate moment. We're on the cross. That's the penultimate. It's the moment before the resurrection, which is the ultimate moment for John as he wants to, to see and believe that Jesus is the Messiah. But uh, at this point, what's kind of led up to this climactic moment is that Jesus has been arrested on trumped up charges. He's been kind of 
Uh, he's been convicted falsely. Then he's been given over to death by, as in, to die as an enemy of the state on a Roman execution rack, which is what we would call a cross. And this is where we meet Jesus then, John 19, 28. And I'm reading in the, the NIV. Later, knowing that everything had been finished, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I thirst. So there is our prayer. But John goes on, verse 29, a jar of wine was there. So they soaked a sponge in it and put the sponge on a stalk of hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. And when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So um, perhaps we can just acknowledge that Jesus' first words, I thirst, they don't really feel like a prayer. Maybe, maybe I'm the only one. Those words to me do not feel like a prayer. And see, this whole series is kind of centered around this one request that the disciples make to Jesus in Luke chapter 11. The disciples, these are the ones who've been with Jesus. They've seen Jesus calm the raging waters. They've seen Jesus cast out demons. Like, so a person manifesting an unclean spirit and Jesus says, be gone, and they're gone. So these are what the disciples are, these are the events of the disciples' life with Jesus. And what they ask him is, Lord, teach us to pray. So apparently there's something about the prayers of Jesus. This, and prayer is simply cultivating intimacy with the Father, talking to God, you could say. So there's something so captivating about that that the disciples come there. And so we too have come to this thing. Lord, teach us to pray. Week one, we encountered kind of the subversive reorienting power of the Lord's prayer. That if indeed God is a good father, we can come to him as such. And, and if that is not a reality that we think is true, then we get to wrestle with it. And so we come there, week one, we do this. We're, we're getting our imaginations reshaped around Father God. Week two, we meet Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. If you remember that fun little Bible trivia, Gethsemane is an oil press. It's where Jesus is literally being pressed out. And in that place, we actually have a place where then we can lay bare our agony, but we can acknowledge our desires as however disordered they are. And from that place, we can entrust ourselves to God. And then this past week, we, we, we meet Jesus again on the cross, praying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus gives language. He, he joins in the concert of the psalmists who are essentially giving a place for us to cry out to God and trust. And we could join God in our forsakenness in that moment. And now I thirst. These, this, this is the, the, the prayer of Jesus. I thirst. And I was talking with somebody about this passage and it was said in this conversation, we might as well just skip straight to communion. Because really, like, what is there to be had? Two words, I thirst. By the way, I was the one who said that. We should just skip uh, right to communion. But, uh, but what I was reminded of in that same conversation was these little moments, these little turn of phrase that we, perhaps you say often, it's like, Lord, help me. Or in our household, it's Lord, have mercy. It's this moment that's almost like this subconscious thing just bubbles out of our mouth, oh, Lord, have mercy, or, 
it's, it, can you fix this moment in your mind of where you're feeling some sort of environmental distress? There's something that's plaguing you. Maybe it's another person. Maybe you just got another notice in the mail because the IRS apparently doesn't know how to deal with their stuff instead of saying you owe money, but you actually don't owe money. Hypothetical scenario. And you're like, oh, Lord, have mercy. So these, these little moments are interesting when it's just us saying these things. And they're even more interesting when there's somebody else who's there where somebody hears that little utterance, oh, Lord, have mercy, and then they presume to know what you're talking about when you're saying, Lord, have mercy. So hypothetically, let's just say that in our household, uh, there's two young boys who are crying out. There's a chorus of cries, and I hear an exasperated, uh, Lord, have mercy from Jess, my wife. And then I, I, it's so odd, I don't even know how to explain it. I go into what I, I would call fix-it mode, and I just go up and I just start doing, I meddle, I start meddling. By the way, in our household, we call this uh, being overly responsible. So I go up, I hear, Lord have mercy. I f go into fix it mode, I'm overly responsible. And it's kind of like what John is doing. It seems as though this is a similar scenario that John is depicting with Jesus's cry, his prayer, I thirst, because it's as though Jesus is saying one thing, I thirst, and he's simultaneously saying another thing, I thirst. See, there is a literal nature to which Jesus says, I thirst. Jesus has, after all, been hanging on a cross. This is, uh, we know from the chronology of John that Jesus has been hanging on the cross for some six hours. He has been wounded. He's been beaten. He's under the hot Palestinian sun. All of these are precursors for a deep, deep thirst to be drummed up. And so we cannot ignore the thirst of Jesus's body, but I think there's something also more. And I'm not like, this is not, there's something hidden in the text of I thirst and we're gonna have the code to crack the Bible. No, I just think that there's something else going on because the whole time that Jesus has been going through leading up to the cross, there's not been a single word uttered of complaint. So why these two words, why I thirst? Well, consider Amari's words once more, especially Amari's little purpose to give back those leaders their humanity. And I think without knowing it, Omari is tapping into kind of the wonder and the beauty and the paradox of the incarnation. And if incarnation feels like a churchy word that you're unfamiliar with, you're actually more familiar with the incarnation than you think you are. If you have recently ordered some tacos and you've gone for carne asada, you know incarnation. Because a carne, flesh, you've ordered some flesh tacos, um, I know, gross, right? Uh, or, or delicious, delicious if you're eating the meat. So in this moment, this is, this is the incarnation. This is the enfleshment, the embodiment of the living God and Jesus of Nazareth. We know what this is. We know the incarnation. And in the case of Jesus, it's not some abstract artist. It is God's very self who's depicting God's self as the one who is dispossessed of power. And the picture of God as vulnerable comes to us in Jesus of Nazareth. He is the one submitting himself to human vulnerability because at the core of the incarnation is vulnerability. So just, I want us to sit with that reality for a moment. That at the center of this 
faith that we hold, this trust that Jesus is who he says he is, namely the living God, one with the Father, is a place where God's very self is exposed to risk and harm, emotional exposure, the whole lot. And this is actually, I think, the place where, where God is inviting you and me into the reality of vulnerability. I, I think that Jesus' words, they point to a deeper thirst that we're going to explore. And this is, this is what I mean by a deeper thirst. Are you familiar with the Dosecki's man? Dosecki's man. He's the most interesting man in the world. And do you remember the, the last line from his little commercials, what he says? Stay thirsty, my friends. Yes? Have you, you see, if you don't have a TV, then you're unfamiliar. But is the thirst that the Dosecki's man is talking about, is that simply for an average beer? You're thinking, yes, is it for something more? Well, this is curious because what is the Dosecki's man doing in those commercials? The most interesting things for the most interesting man in the world. He's cruising with beautiful people. He's jumping out of planes. He's at, at like extravagant galas. This is what I've recently learned is called lifestyle marketing. This is a, well, let's call it what it is. This is propaganda to reshape you to buy this beer because if you buy Dos Equis, not only will your thirst be quenched, but the thirst you actually have to be a interesting person might actually be quenched. The irony of teaching about thirst in the day that we live in is that I think we actually know more about thirst than we ever have, and we're willing to name it as such. We are trapped by our thirst. And yes, that was a super intentional statement. I was on the internet this past week and I learned that there's a thing called a thirst trap. Anybody? No, okay, so the thirst trap. For those of us who up until this past week were ignorant of the thirst trap, apparently you post a provocative image or make a statement of yourself on the social medias. And what it does is, is it's the glittering image of yourself in a mirror with tile behind it. So it's you're in the bathroom showing off your body. And that image apparently traps people and then you can garner likes and affirmation about how you want to be perceived in the world. Thirst trap. We get that there is a thirst. There's a biological need for a thirst, our, our thirst to be satiated. And there is a thirst beneath the thirst. And you know what? This is not a newfangled thing. Like if for the millennials or Gen Zs who are, know what I'm talking about with thirst trap, like we didn't make this up. The biblical imagination has this in mind. It's littered throughout the scriptures. We go to uh, the, the prophet Jeremiah, and, and Jeremiah has in mind that there is a deeper longing that we possess, that there is a place that we want to be known and seen and loved and restored and healed, that there's an actual place that we want to be drawn in. And when, when the prophet Jeremiah is addressing this and God is speaking through the prophet Jeremiah to the people who have rejected Yahweh, the living God, listen to what is said, this is Jeremiah 2.13, my people have committed two sins. That is, they've redefined good and evil on their own teams in these two dominant ways. They've forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. I don't know if you see it here, but the assumption is that we all thirst 
and that we will go to great extremes to satiate our longings. We will go to great extremes, even harmful extremes to satisfy our thirst. We will opt for broken cisterns when streams of living water are on offer. And I don't know if you came to church today to like do some, like to plumb the depths of your thirsts and your desires. Um, that's where we're going. If, if you need to like check out mentally or emotionally at this point, that's fine. I would encourage you to stay with it because I think that the Spirit has on offer something that we all truly want, namely the living God. And if this is not why we're coming to church, like, come on. The living God is saying he has something for us, namely himself. And so what we're going to do is is we're going to see that because thirst is non-negotiable, we're going to track with John because thirst doesn't just show up in John 19, 28. John has been building on this and it's this crescendo moment. And so this may feel a little nerdy, but this, the payoff is worth it. It's just so good. So we're going to look at a few vignettes, a little stories along the way that lead us to this thirst we have. Uh, Starting in John chapter 2, I'm going to do a little storytelling. We're going to read some scripture, storytelling, read some scripture. So John chapter 2, this is the famous wedding at Cana. Does anybody remember what happens in John 2, the wedding at Cana? Yes? Water and wine. And then there's that song that I heard when I first became a Christian, water you turn in. Yeah, that's the song that'll be in your mind the rest of the day. So we know this story. But this water into wine moment, this is not just for the bride and groom. This is not just a a personal moment between Jesus and them of like, here, I just want you to have this beautiful moment. No, Jesus' mom comes over and is like, the party is a bust. They're out of wine. And so she basically, um, she forces the servants to pay attention to Jesus, do what he says. So Jesus says, okay, there's these six cisterns, interesting, six cisterns of water. Now cisterns, this is not like a common uh, measurement that you have in your kitchen. These are giant vessels that hold anywhere between 20 and 30 gallons of water. So he says, fill them to the brim and bring them back. So they do this, they bring them back. And then Jesus, this miracle happens where the water is turned into wine and then the attendant of the wedding, like the, the MC in our context comes over and goes, this is the best. You've saved the best for last. This is amazing. People don't do this. Normally it's the worst because everybody's already all tipsy. Now the best stuff is coming out. This is amazing. And so John then tells us in John 2, 11, that this is a sign of God's glory being manifest through Jesus. So this is God's glory and generosity on display in Jesus, water into wine. And then John builds on this. This is so good. John chapter four, this water image just starts to unfold. See, water's not just a thing that turns into communal joy as it goes from water to wine. Now Jesus is the place of transformation. He is the water capable of radical transformation. And this is the idea. As you take in Jesus's life, it becomes a place where you can embody a new quality of life that starts now and lasts forever. By the way, I just gave you a definition of eternal life. A thing that starts now and lasts forever, a new quality of being human. This is so good. So now John 4, 4, we're gonna pick up into verse four and then we're gonna read seven to 14. John 4, 4, now he had to go through Samaria. Now just stop right there. No, he didn't. 
John didn't have, like Jesus didn't have to go through Samaria. He very well could have done what every other sensible Jew in his day would do and go around it. They're down in Judea, if you know the geography. I don't have a map. Kate, no map. Oh, I love me a map. So if you know the geography, Judea in the south, Galilee in the north, and there's this area right in the middle of Samaria. And Jesus would normally, if he was a good, sensible Jew and a rabbi at that, would go around and make the long trip, but instead he must go through. And then we pick up with this scene where he must go through and he's in the midday sun and look who he encounters. Verse seven, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? And then I love this, John gives us these little parenthetical thoughts. I really love the gospel according to John because his brain seems to work like mine. Like there's a thing that's happening and then he gives you a little note. Verse eight, um, his disciples had gone into town to buy food. Oh, thanks, John. Verse nine, the Samaritan woman said to Jesus, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Another note from John, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. So the pervasive reality is that this ethnic minority, namely Samaritans, have no part. They are not recognized as humans. You know that the story of the good Samaritan, what makes that such a subversive and powerful story is that it's the Samaritan who embodies the will of God, who loves their neighbor. That's what makes it so scandalizing is because the Samaritans, the Jews wouldn't associate with the Samaritans, but the Samaritan is giving away his goods to sustain the life of a Jew. This is a scandalous moment, and maybe we don't feel it so far removed, but it is. Verse 10, Jesus asked her. So two times now, Jesus is asking this woman for something. And then, or excuse me, he answered, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now, this is a weird thing. And so her response is telling, verse 11, sir, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. So she's seeing Jesus for just what's happening in front of her. It's like it's two-dimensional at this point. Where can you get this living water? And then verse 13, Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water, they're at a well, will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So apparently Jesus is on this little conversation where he's talking about people drinking from wells that dry up and yet he has a source that will not dry up. And this is an opportunity for this woman. Do, do we see the subtext going on here, how scandalous this moment is? Like, what does this say for us about engaging with people who we're scandalized by? Like, I'm going to keep going or else this would be like a, a rant about um, racial equity and, and like gender equality and stuff like that. But I'm not, I would love to chase those rabbits in a private conversation. Yes and amen. But I want to stay on track here so we can get down this mountain to Jesus saying it is finished. But come on. Like there is some stuff going on here that ought to get our attention. So let us not sanitize Jesus in the name of our cultural norms. Let us embrace this moment. Because if you're a woman and you have been married, which is what we see play out, and then you have been divorced, because Jesus is essentially going to engage and she's going to say, sir, give me that water that doesn't run out. And so Jesus is like, okay, um, go get your husband. Oh, wait, you can't do that. Because the person you're living with right now is not your husband. Oh, and, and you've been married five times before. So it's like, whoa, that just got, that got real, Jesus. Okay, I didn't know you were going to go there, but now that you're there, what are you going to do? So essentially, this woman is cohabitating with her partner. 
and she's not just been married once, but she's been married five times. I don't know how you've heard this story told before. Perhaps this woman is like a whore and Jesus is engaging with people who are on the fringes. That fringes part is right. But if you're a woman in the first century and you've been married five times, it's also man like that you've been divorced five times and you have no agency. You have no say as to whether you stay in that marriage. If, if somebody writes you a certificate, you take it. So again, I'm not going to chase that rabbit. Just let that work on you of what Jesus is doing here. Because it'd be so easy for us to map our own assumptions onto this, but there is living water that is bringing restoration and renewal and... <sighs> Come on, y'all. This is, this is in the Bible. This is amazing. John 5. We'll just keep going here. Jesus heals a guy at the pools of Siloam, literally the waters of healing. This is a really fascinating story where there's this um, mystical reality that they are embracing that is like an angel, a messenger of God would come in and dip uh, their finger in the pools and they'd swirl around. And if you get down, you can like hustle down there, you can be healed. But this uh, paralytic is laying on a mat. And so uh, try as he might, he can't get down there. He is always too late to get to the pool. And so Jesus rolls up to the paralytic laying on this mat and is essentially like, oh, you don't need those waters. I'm, I'm the springs of living water. Like I actually have healing for you. Come on, this is amazing. So this is what's going on. Jesus essentially says, pick up your mat and go. Then there's some whole hubbub because this is on the Sabbath, but we turn the page to John chapter six and now uh, because there's some tension there, they're seeking to kill Jesus, standard fare in Jesus's life. Now he's in the wilderness and the crowds come to Jesus. Are, how, how are we doing? Doing all right? Okay, Jesus in the wilderness, crowds, and then check out this statement, John six thirty-five. So he's feeding them and then he says this, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And then hear this, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. So up until this point, this is what John has been doing with Jesus. And this is specifically, um, water's transformed as a place of joy for the community. Then Jesus is the place of transformation for those who would come and take his life in. And then he's putting that on display, that, that the place of rest is a true place of restoration. This is the good work that the Father's given Jesus to restore people. And he's the one who can do it. And now, now he's saying that if you trust in him, you'll never thirst. And this, this just builds because the next scene is brilliant. John 7, they're at the Feast of Tabernacles. And the tabernacles are where they're living in booths. So it's seven days to commemorate God's faithfulness to them in the wilderness. And so the people of Israel come together and they're remembering God's faithfulness. And then at the climax of the feast, this is what we hear, John 7:37. And I'm reading from the New Living Translation because I think they, they get this uh, verse 38 spot on here. On the last day, the climax of the festival, Jesus stood and shouted to the crowds, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. For the scriptures declare, rivers of living water will flow from the heart of anyone who believes in me. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? Streams of living water are on offer he is the one who has the capacity to satiate our thirst. And at this point, I really don't think there's any question of how Jesus imagines himself. He is the source. He is the one who could satisfy our deepest longings. 
So how then can the one who can satisfy our deepest longings be the one who also says, I thirst? New Testament scholar Tom Wright goes on to, uh, continues this line of questioning. He said this, had the water of life failed? Had the wine run out for good? He saved others, could he not save himself? As with the crown of thorns and the mocking purple robe, this is part of the truth of it all. This is how Jesus must do what only he can do. And then listen to this line here. He must come to the place where everyone is, the place of thirst, shame, and death. That is his glory and yes, his joy. See, Jesus' prayer, I think, is less of a thing to copy and paste. Like, like a thing where in the morning you're, I don't know, having a devotional time with Jesus or you're just being quiet before the Lord on your commute. I, I don't think it's a copy and paste. I actually think it's a place where we get to plumb the depths of our own hearts. Where we get to interrogate our thirsts. Hear, his, hear Jesus again in our passage later, knowing that everything had now been finished. And so the scripture would be fulfilled. Jesus said, I thirst. And they take the wine vinegar. They put it to his lips. He drinks. And when he received it, Jesus said, it is finished. It's done. It is complete. And I actually think these two statements, I thirst and it is finished, are meant to work on and with one another. That these are the things that, if, that we would do well to attend to because Jesus has now finished the work that the Father gave him to do. He has loved to the very end those who were given to him. He has accomplished the full and final task. Jesus is now, in his prayer, offering a place of receiving. And I, I remember having a conversation with our board a while back where we were talking about, well, what is this thing that we're doing? What are we doing when we gather? Is this a place where we are participating? Is this a, a, a place where we're producing, where we're contributing to something? Or is this a place where we're consuming? And what was shown to me is that there's this false dichotomy that you're either producing or you're consuming. And the church gets to flip the script on that false dichotomy because we actually come here to receive. We get to receive from God who is generous and we get to give. We get to do it all in this thing called participation. We get to figure out with one another through our collective stories and our singing and our teaching and the, the times of just mingling what it is to be human in the name of Jesus. And that starts from a place where Jesus says it is finished, which I think is the hardest place for us to go because it feels like we're a work in progress. So how can it be finished? Well, I think this is where it comes together. Like Jesus is here to satisfy our thirst so that we can say with him that it is finished. And so the work of being Christian is to receive his life as the thing that satisfies us. And I say work because it is work. <laughs> it's work to notice the stuff that we long for other than him. It's, it's work to name that it has some sort of grip on us and it's work to attend to removing those things. It's what Paul in Ephesians 4 will talk about, putting off the old self. This is work.
And I'm just curious, if Jesus has said this, how many of us live with this nagging sense, this longing sense of loneliness or frustration that things aren't the way that they ought to be? And it kind of clings to us like film wrap, just can't quite get it off because we thirst for intimacy. We go to one community, we can't find it there. We go to another place, we can't find it there. We, thir we thirst for comfort. We thirst for affirmation. We have thirsts in our bodies. And then there's the stuff that we would not dare tell our closest friend. See, there's this idea that in our culture, and this is not like, oh, shame the culture, all these things, and this isn't even time for cultural analysis. It's just coming to mind that we look to ourselves. We look to the deepest place, our hearts. But let me just say for a moment, have you ever been surprised by what you find in there? You're having a conversation with somebody. Oh, how are things going? Oh, they're going really well. I want to kill you is in the backdrop. And maybe that's kind of like funny, like it, maybe you're not thinking that you actually want to kill them. But in the moment, you're like, oh my gosh, if somebody knew the stuff that was broiling inside of me, the lust that I carry in my body, the, the whatever, my goodness, like we thirst for some stuff that is even scary to name aloud. So what do we do with this? Well, in a few moments, we're going to um, turn, we're going to remember Jesus and the bread and the cup. But before we do this, there's a little bit of a lengthy quote. And so I just, I think this one pastor kind of wraps this stuff up. And earlier in his career, he had this really, I think, gentle spirit. And so um, in this book on fasting, he, he writes this. He says, Jesus said, some people hear the word of God and a desire for God is awakened in their hearts. But then as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life. In another place, Jesus said the desire for other things enter in and choke the word, and it per proves unfruitful. The pleasures of life, the desires for other things, these are not evil in themselves. These are not vices. These are gifts of God. And hear this. These are your basic meat and potatoes, coffee, gardening, reading, decorating, traveling, investing, TV watching, internet surfing. You could put in there doom scrolling, shopping, exercising, collecting, and talking. Again, these are not vices. These are gifts of God, and all of them can become deadly substitutes for God. The greatest enemy of hunger, or in our case, thirst for God, is not poison, but apple pie. It is not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but endless nibbling at the table of the world. It is not X-rated video, but the primetime dribble of triviality we drink in every night. Nibbling at the table of the world. And what we see with Jesus is that you actually cannot give what you don't have. And so when we hear Jesus say, I thirst, the author of Hebrews will say it this way, that we have a high priest who can empathize with us in every way. He knows the thirst. He, he can empathize with us. And he also knows what can truly satisfy us. It's his love. It's the self-emptying love of Jesus. It's the vulnerability, the, the God who paints himself as the one who is willing to go to the place of shame and even death, death on a cross, so that we who stand with him in his life and his death might too stand with him in his resurrection power. 
By the way, that's the gospel. And this isn't just something that you hear once and then live your life as though you're saved. This is something that you continue to stand in and wrestle with because we need the gospel today, because we need our thirst satisfied today, because it is finished. 